we live in an instant world. We've grown used to instant communication, instant coffee, instant popcorn, and instant credit. If it takes longer than five minutes to get that fancy latte made exactly the way we'd like it in the coffee shop, we get impatient, we get frustrated. In Las Vegas, we have drive-through wedding chapels when you can get married in your car by Elvis. I even saw a news story this last week on the internet that some funeral homes are now starting to build drive-by viewing windows in some countries so that you don't even need to get out of your car to pay respects to a loved one or a friend. You can just drive on by. And scientists just this past week came up with a bed that makes itself. Sheets, covers, pillows, you hit a button and boom, your bed is made. I just ordered one for each one of my children. (laughs) Well, what's next? Drive through churches? Just drive on by, you hit the first button and a bulletin shoots out right into your car. Maybe the next button you get a sermon CD that comes out all the while music is playing. The third machine perhaps shoots out communion, juice and bread. And then maybe there's a man who sits on the corner on your way out to shake your hand for fellowship time. (laughs) And then you just drive on off into the sunset having done church. See, in an instant world, we don't want to wait for anything. That same impatience manifests itself in our ministry and in our spiritual lives as well. We want ourselves and our churches to be instantly sanctified. We want ministries to quickly grow, churches to be fine-tuned and perfect. And we quickly grow discouraged where there seems to be little perceptible progress in ministry. This seems to be what disheartened the people of God in Haggai chapter 2. They had started rebuilding the temple. They began to work on the foundation. They were a month into it or so, and they're discouraged. A month in, they're disheartened. They needed some encouragement. And God is going to give it to them through the prophet Haggai. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, please turn with me again to the book of Haggai. We're in the second week of a short two-week study of this little book. It's the second Shortest book in the Old Testament, the third to last book of the Old Testament. So if you get to the New Testament, to Matthew, just go backwards. Three books, Malachi, Zechariah, and then you'll hit the book of Haggai. Well, let me give us a recap of where we are, an instant live action replay of what's going on. In 597, the Israelites were defeated by Babylon, and in 586, the city of Jerusalem is destroyed The temple is burned, and the people are taken into exile. And then in 538, the Persians now defeat Babylon, and King Cyrus sent them back, allowed them to go back to rebuild their city. See, the Babylonian way was to capture prisoners and then to take them to their land, into exile. The Persian way was to let you live on your own, in your own cities. They would send spies to keep watch over you. And so many of the Israelites in Babylon, they just decided to stay. They had planted roots there. They had made Babylon their home, and so they stayed. But about 50,000 Israelites took Cyrus 
upon his offer and they made the 1500 kilometer journey back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and to reestablish their lives. And they get started on the foundation, as we saw last week. They start building it up, but quickly afterwards, they flounder under a bit of persecution, and then most of all, a lot of distraction. They start building up their own houses and building up their own name. They're content to see the temple lying there in ruins while they busy themselves decorating and paneling their own houses. Their priorities were completely off base. We saw last week that their time, their talent, their treasure were being used to further their own kingdom and not God's. So Haggai comes, this mouthpiece of God, the prophet of God and the words of God. He says, repent. Repent. Look at what you're doing. You're storing up treasure for yourself. You've gathered, gathered wood and you spent all your time, all your talent, all your treasure to build up your own paneled houses while my house lies here in ruins, decimated. Repent. And they did. See, repentance always results in life change and obedience. And so in just a couple weeks, they're up. They're rebuilding the temple. They're hard at work. It's astonishing because usually prophets are ignored or even abused. But these people, they get to work. They start building up the temple. But after just a month, 30 days have passed and they're down again, discouraged, disheartened. Should have been a celebratory time, but instead they're ready to give up. Now, can this happen to us today? Can you find yourselves in the midst of God doing some amazing things in your life? You're growing in obedience and his promises are ever before you, but somehow discouragement finds its way into the crevices of your heart. And instead of rejoicing, instead of celebrating, you find yourself sad, doubting, and wondering if this thing you're putting your hands to in the name of God is even worth it. Can this happen to us? Of course it can. And so Haggai is going to speak into this in the second chapter. And so chapter one, repent, get your priorities in place. Make sure God is first in your life. He can't be a close second. He's got to be on the throne of your life. And then chapter two, what happens when you begin pursuing God and pursuing ministry and you get discouraged? And so in the midst of these three oracles in chapter two, these three prophecies, sermons, Haggai is going to give us two truths about God and one desire that God has for us. Three things. I am with you. I want your heart. And I will come again. These three things will serve as the outline or the framework of the sermon. The first and third are truths. And the second is God's desire. I am with you. I want your heart, and I will come again. So first, I am with you. Look there at verses 1 through 3. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, 
and to all the remnant of the people and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Haggai asks rhetorically, okay, by a show of hands, how many of you 50,000 people actually were around 70 years ago when the old temple was still in place? See, there were some who were around back in the days of Solomon's temple. And Haggai asks, who remembers seeing it? Well, how do you see it now? See, what happened was the nation, they started back at work again. They got the foundations laid The stones are going up. And all of a sudden it was conjuring up memories of the previous temple. And they're going, now, now, wait a minute. This doesn't look like Solomon's temple. It looks like a shack compared to what we used to have. And while the physical dimensions were, were similar, that old temple had precious jewels adorning it everywhere. It had layers and layers of gold covering it. And the older, older generation saying, this is it? This is what we got. This will never be as good as what we had. And they began to weep. Have you ever been in their place? Have you ever been in a spot when there's something you've invested in? You've put tons of time and work and energy only to get discouraged when you look in that rear view mirror and you think that this present thing could never be as good as something from the past. Well, I think all of us can relate to being disappointed with how something is turning out when we compare it to our idealized expectations. And you can imagine the scene here in Haggai chapter 2. This older generation is just, just weeping, just crying out. And yet, you have a younger generation that are excited. Ezra chapter 3 tells us about this scene. It says that the old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout for the sound of the people's weeping. See, the old guys are having snapshots of the past. And they're saying, this this is not good. And they're crying. They shook their heads. This is hopeless. We've got nothing. The young guys, they're, they're pumped. They've never seen anything like this before. We get to worship God in this new temple that we're building. They were thrilled. And so what you have is this mix of crying and weeping and shouting for joy. I mean, what in the world is going on? See, the older generation has spent so much time looking back that they neglected to appreciate what God was doing in the present Those were the good old days, they said. What good can today bring? Or are we susceptible to this today? Do we get to the point when we look back and we're discouraged? Maybe some of you look back and say, we liked it better when our church was smaller. I I was able to do this or that. Or before I had kids, before I had little children, I was able to do blank. I was able to do this or that ministry. My former ministry was great, and now this ministry I have today is just a shell of what it once was. Or I've been doing this for years. I've been working hard at my job, sharing the gospel with my coworkers, leading a church small group, serving, but I don't have as much to show for it as I'd like. The present reality seemed depressingly mundane. 
hardly able to match up to the celebrated mighty acts of God in the past. Well, this is what the Israelites were feeling, especially this older generation. And God tells them, and he tells us, to press on, to keep working. And here's that encouraging truth. Look at verses 4 and 5. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Be strong. Be strong. And in case you missed it, be strong. Why? And here's the truth. I am with you. Those have got to be the four most encouraging words in the Bible. I am with you. In the same way that I was with you in Egypt, when I plagued the Egyptians and took you out from Pharaoh's bondage and parted the Red Sea so that you could escape. I'm with you in the same way as I was with you when you entered the promised land and that that first battle, that city of Jericho with those walls towering all around you. I'm with you in the same way as I was with you when you shouted out with a marching band and those walls came crumbling to the ground and I gave the city and the land over to you. I'm with you in the same way that I was with David when I took a little stone a little stone, and I crushed that warrior Goliath and subdued the entire Philistine army. I'm with you just as I was with Ruth, who lost her husband and her entire identity. And I brought her a kinsman redeemer named Boaz. And I'm with you as I was with Jeremiah, who saw no fruit. He ministered through his tears year after year saw no repentance, and yet I sustained him. I was there. And I'm with you here, the Lord of hosts. This is God's warrior name. It points to his military prowess, his sovereignty over everything. And his spirit remains in your midst and won't remain idle. Verse 6, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Verse 7, I'm going to shake all the nations. God's going to create this cosmic commotion to engage the nations as instruments on behalf of the rebuilding of the temple. The language of the earth shaking was always typical of theophanies, appearances of God. When God appeared at Mount Sinai, the mountain literally shook. There's a new world order coming which will arrive at the appearing of the Lord himself. He will shake it all up. It's all his. Verse 8. Even the gold and the silver, God says, is mine. Guys, you don't see the precious jewels. Don't worry. Everything is at God's disposal. Psalm 50 says, Every beast of the forest, the cattle on a thousand hills, all God's. God is saying, work, continue on. Lift your eyes up to me. I am in this. The best is yet to come. You see this crummy looking building over here? Be faithful to me regardless of what you see. Lift your heart. 
So much so that in verse 9, he says that this new temple shall be greater than the former. Because it's Christ who fills the church. It wasn't important how big or extravagant the temple was. What's important was that God was there. It was all very well to rebuild this structure, but without the return of God's presence, it would remain a worthless, empty shell. God was saying, it's all about me and I'm here. He's saying, work hard, trust God, don't despise the day of small things. God is at work. Now, things may not look great yet. Maybe it's not providing instant gratification, but wait, work, pray, consider, and know that God is bringing about his good purposes in his perfect timing. I am with you. And we need this truth, don't we? We need it to melt, melt our hearts every day. I am with you. He is. But there was another problem with the people of God. There was a theological error. And so there's a second message, a second sermon for God's people that comes in the form of a rebuke. God tells the people of God he wants their heart. That's the second point here in the sermon. It's the second oracle, second prophecy. It's God's desire for his people. I want your heart. It's the second thing. And it's here in the second sermon of Haggai that Haggai poses a case regarding cleanliness to the priests. The scenario envisaged by Haggai is a person carrying home the leftovers of the fellowship offering. Look at verses 10 through 13. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. So here's the problem. People were bringing offerings to the ruins of the temple, hoping God would bless them. But the problem was a good work can never make a sinner right with God. A work by defiled hands can't be accepted by a holy God. And Haggai used an example of clean and unclean. Can something clean make something unclean? Well, if you have children, you know the contagious power of dirt, don't you? Why is it that when your kid touches the wall with his grubby hands that he leaves a mark on the wall, but then that same kid with clean hands, if he or she touches the wall, it doesn't leave a clean mark, does it? And if they would touch that dirty mark, it doesn't automatically erase the dirt. Well, in the same way, you and I catch colds, right? We don't catch health. When you go into a doctor's office in some countries, they have a a well child room and a sick child room. Now, they don't bring the well kids into the sick room, hoping that the sick children will sit near the well kids and get better. It doesn't work that way. They separate them because it's the cold that can spread to the healthy ones. Or, if I were to walk over here and pick up Glenn's pristine and holy guitar, 
I would not automatically know how to play the guitar and lead you in music at the end of the service. In fact, it would be quite the opposite, wouldn't it? First, my hands would automatically break the strings. And as I began to play, I would make quite an awful noise instead of a joyful one. I would break your conscience as you listen to me play. And the great Glenn Jones himself would rush the platform and strip the guitar away, saving us from further judgment. And so holiness before God can't be transmitted from one person or one object to another. And rightly so. The priests, they answer Haggai here and they say, no, it can't. When clean comes into conflict with dirty, dirty wins every time. Now, the Lord Jesus is the only one who is holy, who can touch something unclean and not only not become unclean himself, but makes that unclean person clean. Now, the point Haggai is making is that even the most religious actions are not necessarily acceptable. Ritual holiness does not lead to real holiness, but ritual defilement does lead to defilement. So why does he share this? Well, verse 14. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. So in a sense, all that the nation had done for those years before God revamped their heart and they got back to work, all that they had done to rebuild the temple, God says, is unclean. Even though they set up altars for worship and reinstituted feasts and built the foundation for the temple, God says, all that, unclean. I don't care how great the religious activity was or is now. Your hearts were unclean. Therefore, everything you touched, you didn't make it holy. And now that you've gotten back to work and I'm moving forward, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden I'm obligated to reverse all the agricultural curses that were on you the past 15 years. See, what I've been after isn't merely your actions. What I've been after is your hearts. And God starts working on his people like a spiritual cardiologist. He begins doing open heart surgery on his people. He does this because it's all about the heart. He wants to know, have you set your hearts on spiritual reality or are you dependent on external formality? This is what God is getting at through Haggai. I mean, to put it into terms we can understand today, does, does attending an evangelical church where the Bible is believed and Jesus is faithfully preached make us acceptable to God simply by our physical attendance? Or how about the ministry that we do? Does doing ministry for God equal a love for God? Those people were working on building this elegant superstructure, working externally by what God commanded, but in their hearts they were far away from him. He wants their hearts, not religious formality. The great Puritan Thomas Brooks, he talks about religious formality and says, formality is more light than life. Knowing more than you trust. It is more notion than motion. Understanding things but never being moved by them. It is more head than heart. 
More outside than inside. More leaves than fruit. More shadow than substance. One of the great dangers is doing things for God but not being in love with God. God says, you can't think that consecration to Christ can be transferred automatically from somewhere else. I mean, the Israelites thought, if I do this and this and this, then God will love me and deem me as holy. And if I do this and this and this for God, then he'll be obligated to bless me because I'm doing this for him. Now, let me ask you something. Do we find the same misunderstanding in our culture today? Well, absolutely we do. So the problem that's going on here in the book of Haggai is twofold. One is of legalism. It's the feeling of, I have to do good works in order to be acceptable to God. The other one you see going on here in the nation is this prosperity gospel that simply says, because I'm his, because I'm doing this work for God, then he owes me everything that's good. But the temple was not a good luck charm or a genie that distributed salvation and holiness. This is why the explanation is given as to why the returns from their farms had been so poor, why they were facing drought. Look there at verse 17. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. God says, I struck you. The Lord did it. He disciplined them. It didn't matter what they did. God disciplined them for what was going on in their hearts. The Lord's discipline is never happenstance or coincidental. There's always a purpose. In his grace, he was alerting them to the error of their ways. I mean, they should have repented long before Haggai prophesied. And even now, after they started rebuilding the temple, their hearts should have been engaged with him. Now, in that way, we see here discipline is really a grace. That's why we work hard to discipline our children. It's for their good and ultimately their joy. But the series of poor harvests had not achieved its purpose. They had not yet repented until we saw the last chapter. Oh, friend, is there something in your life right now that God is alerting you to? Now, there are many reasons why suffering and chastisement comes, all of it ultimately to bring God glory, some simply to draw attention to his glory. We see that in the book of Job. Job suffers, the text says, not because of any of his specific sin, but because of God bringing glory to himself. But other times, there is discipline for sin. And so I ask you today to consider, is God trying to wake you up or get your attention this morning? Examine your heart. Is your heart fully his Stop and consider. Don't ignore the promptings of the Holy Spirit in your heart. Now down in verse 19, God also says that I will bless you. But see, this blessing is is not automatic. It's God's choice. Always grace, not merit. Now the great music group from the UK, the Beatles, they came across in the Bible what they thought was the law of karma. They said that the Bible essentially teaches this. It says, whatever you sow... You will reap. We've done the right thing, and so God then has to give us the right things. But as you read that same passage, you may work hard, and the hardworking farmer thinks they deserve a crop, but they may not get it because of fire 
or because of locusts that have ruined it. It's not automatic. See, the Beatles misunderstood the very passage they were quoting from. Now, God is not a cosmic vending machine of karma. You put the right amount of money in, you push the button, and out comes something equal in return. No, our spiritual problem is often our false expectations of the blessing of God. That's why the prosperity gospel is so wicked. It alters our expectations to what God has not promised. And so we have these false expectations of what we think God should and will do. Now we don't see that what is given to us is actually best. We don't understand when his promises will come or when he will deliver them, but he will. Now the point of all this that God is making here is that God makes you clean, that God, his own choosing, brings you blessing. This then this is how you and I become acceptable to God. You don't say, God, I've I've kept all the Ten Commandments. I've limited the amount of lust and greed that I used to have. You don't look around and compare yourself to other people and say, Well, I'm not as crazy as that other guy or other gal over there. They're wild, I'm not that bad. I've gone to church services every week. But see, going to a church service makes you no more a Christian than going into McDonald's makes you a Big Mac. It just doesn't do it. So we just keep going. And in trying to earn God's righteousness, we keep going and going and going, and we try to climb that ladder until some point in time we come to an understanding of the good news of Jesus that tells us that while our best deeds are like filthy rags before a holy God, there is a way to be saved. Because you can't earn it by his grace. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came. He died on the cross. He was risen from the dead so that you and I don't need to try to climb that ladder. Why? Because grace has come down that ladder to you and offered a sacrifice of his life on your behalf. This time, not just as a piece of meat from a goat that you have to sacrifice over and over again. But one sacrifice for all time. Jesus, who is God himself. Now this is the good news, that God doesn't love you based on your performance. He loves you based on his son. That's the beauty of Christianity, that God loves you based on the performance of Jesus. God loves you based on what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. He lived the perfect life. He died the perfect death. And as you believe and repent, he gives that to you. Friend, if you've come to this place today, you've made a mess of your life, and you're under the impression that merely attending a church service or doing a good work is going to fix everything, well then, we don't have anything to offer you today. We have nothing to give to you, nothing to say. But what we do have, what we do have, we share with you freely. We, and we don't merely have good advice. We have good news. See, good advice only works so far as you work on it. But good news is different. Good news is something that has happened. It's a truth to be believed. And the good news is this, that God has sent a Savior to us, Christ, the Lord, God in the flesh, who's offered his life. He's given it up for you. He's died a death with your sins poured upon him. And you can rest in that grace if you believe in him to save you. And you turn from your sin, acknowledging that every good work is a filthy rag. 
Everything you've tried to do to earn it has failed, has left you separated from him for all eternity. If you would acknowledge that, repent and turn to him, you will be saved. Oh friend, give God your heart. Give him all of it. Fellow Christian, run from mere external formality and give him your heart. He wants your heart. It's his desire. Well, just when it looks like we're done, when we're coming to the end of the book, there's more good news for us. Haggai's book ends with some great encouragement. It's the second truth that we see, and it's the third point of the sermon this morning. It's the third point. I will come again. I will come again. One last sermon, one last message. It actually comes the same day as this last one we just looked at. Sort of a morning sermon and an evening sermon. This last message is given to one man, Zerubbabel, but it's meant to encourage the entire nation. Look at verses 20 through 23. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So, okay, God is with us and God has saved us. But what about the future? I get it, the past, the present. What about the end? See, the struggle was, does God have a long-term plan for his people? What are they? Will he care for them? Well, there's a comforting truth that God wanted to get across to his people, and that's this. I will come again. I will come again. See, Zerubbabel was their governor. It means that Persia is actually running the country. He was a governor under their rule. It really isn't a kingdom. It's an outpost of Persia. The hope for the kingdom was pretty low. It didn't look like the kingdom that they were expecting. But God says, I will shake the nations for wealth and change them around. This messianic kingdom will come in Zerubbabel's line. He would be a signet ring. This ring would, would be the official seal of the king. It, if they had official documents or letters, they would fold them up, put them into an envelope, put hot wax on the seal, and they would press it down with the ring. And wherever they delivered it, it would be the official sign of authority of the king. Sometimes they'd wear it as a ring on their finger, other times as part of a necklace around their neck. And it had an emblem on it that designated that this is from the king. It had his authority. And Zerubbabel is wondering, will that signet ring ever get put back on? Will this kingly line continue? I'm just a governor of a few exiles under the rule of Persia. Not, not exactly a great kingdom. It was actually no kingdom. And in the midst of the situation, Haggai comes along with a message from God. Listen, 
someday an amazing event is going to take place. And in that day, I'm going to use you like a signet ring through the Messiah. Now, yes, I'm going to put that ring back on you. And down the road, just 10 generations later from you, one will come to Bethlehem wrapped in swaddling clothes, and he will be a savior for the whole world through his death on the cross. And in a future day, he will come back and he will make all things new. He will put away evil and do right. And Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, that's through you. That's coming through you, through this kingly line. So take courage. Your labor is not in vain. You're building into something bigger than you can see. I will shake this world and the result will not be the disordering of the world but rather in the proper ordering of a presently disordered world. See, Zerubbabel was the chosen guardian of the chosen people, the rebuilder of God's house, the restorer of dignity to the line of David. In all these ways, Zerubbabel is a type of Christ. It points to Christ. All of God's promises through Haggai would ultimately be fulfilled in Christ Jesus himself. See, in the world's eyes, Zerubbabel, he had little significance. He was a minor government official in a backwater province, the inheritor of a cast-off royal line. Yet in spite of this lack of outward majesty, God had chosen Zerubbabel and given him a task to undertake, that of the rebuilding of his house. Same as the greater son of Zerubbabel, Jesus. He too had no form or majesty to attract people to him. He took no position that would grant him respect in the world. He humbled himself. He took the form of a servant, then steeped even lower to the point of death on a cross, a form of death that was reserved for those accursed from God. And God would anoint this king, a king above all kings, a name above all names, And the same Savior who died for you and has given you new life, the same Savior will come back again. And in the midst of this present chaos, we can await a future of hope, a future that God has already begun to unfold for us in Christ Jesus. And in the meantime, we wait for the final shaking of the heaven and the earth. And while this may not come this instant, It will come instantly. Our calling is to be faithful. Friends, as you go about your daily grind, chores, studies, work, witnessing, raising the kids, ministering, sometimes our tasks look like stone rolling at the temple grounds. But none of our labors will be wasted in the purposes of God. And so we walk by faith in the Son of God, who gave us his very life, hoping that we too, in the end of our days, may too hear the words of God, well done, good and faithful servant. I am with you. I want your heart. And I will come again. Oh, Father, let your kingdom come. Let's pray together. Father, we pray for your grace to fall upon us. May we continue on in perseverance and in purity, knowing that you have promised to come back 
and usher in your kingdom in its fullness. That we will see Jesus reign in full consummation of his glory. Until that day, would we as a people of God, would we as Redeemer Church of Dubai be faithful to serve you all the days of our lives? Would we serve you in such a way as to bring you honor and glory? Would we persevere in difficult times, trusting in your promises from the past, seeing your work in the present, and hoping in the promises of the future when we will see Jesus Christ face to face for all eternity. Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.